Okay, that's the first message you're going to get today. Now we'll be ready for the Bible class. Turn to the book of Romans, 7th chapter. Well, good morning. Here we have our favorite couple from Slaughter. Slaughter, Louisiana. Mr. and Mrs. Borg, so good to see you. Okay, we're seventh chapter of Romans. Just starting that this morning. We've had gracious studies for months now in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters of Romans. Sixth chapter was just this past week, and we stayed for weeks and weeks in the fifth chapter. That was super great. And uh, we're not going to go too deep into this, because I don't go too deep into anything. But we, we just want to give you what the Lord gave us. And let's start reading with verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taken occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I don't think we'll get any further than that if we even get that far this morning, but let's bow our heads just for a moment. Father, we want to thank you for those thou hast sent this way this morning. Thank you that we can read thy word publicly, that we can read it privately too. We thank thee for our place of worship and for this word that thou hast preserved. We ask that thou will open our understandings to learn more about our great redemption, especially about our great substitute redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Paul always vindicates the holiness of the law as well as to demonstrate its use in convicting of sin. Although believers as dead to the guilt of sin they were still exposed to its seductions. So in this chapter, Paul is going to tell us of his own experience since he became 
dead to the law and was united to Christ. He wants to show that even after being united to Christ, he came far short of the demands of the law. A lot of people think once they're saved, they got it whipped. Are you kidding? Well, they do in Christ. They can't keep it. He still had an old nature, which Paul calls the flesh. Now, when in chapter 3, verse 20, and just take a peek at it now, see what he says there. Chapter 3, verse 20, he said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He says that no flesh can be justified by the law. And he includes those already justified. You can't keep justified by the law. So here Paul lays open the secrets of his heart to show the incessant combat between the old and the new natures in the believer. Not too many congregations know anything at all about the flesh, the old nature, and God's Spirit both indwelling the believer. Now he starts out, Know ye not? He appeals to the personal knowledge of those to whom he wrote. Paul uses that expression several times because God's people are supposed to know some things. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Every time we say 3.16, we think of John, huh? He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He says, Know ye not. That's something you should know. Stay in that same book, but look at chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 19, on the next page. I must have the wrong scripture. It doesn't say you know, does it? But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know. Okay. Not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power of God. And how often Paul says in his writings, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Now, I didn't list all those scriptures, but those are some of my favorites. I don't want you to be ignorant, and then he'll tell us some great gospel truth. Now, the law hath dominion over man, and that's inclusive of men and women. You see, that's what our first verse says there, that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, and it includes the lady. Now, verses 2 and 3. It's the law of marriage. It's very, very clear here. You don't have to guess who's committing adultery and who's married or who isn't. It's here in black and white, just as clear as can be. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress though she be married to another man. He doesn't give any reasons, exceptions, conditions, or anything. It's stated here in black and white 
And we have to live by this, okay? Now, the author of human nature and of the law by which man is to be governed has ordained the lawfulness of second marriages for the purpose of shadowing forth the truth of the salvation between Christ and the church. No different from our times, it was usual both for husbands and wives among the Romans to be married to others while their first mates were still living. I don't think ancient Rome got as bad as we are today, but I could be wrong. I didn't live then. And they, like us, did not consider that if even uh, of that as being guilty of adultery. Don't give it a second thought. Everybody else does it. Now the ratio is up, 50% divorces and remarriages, and you should see our schools there and the kids there, and they don't know who's daddy, who's mama, who they're living with anymore. Okay, verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, you're also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. It's whether the husband or the wife dies, the union is equally dissolved and dead to the law. This is the whole law, including the whole will of God in any way manifested to all mankind, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, it's the moral law, not the ceremonial law, where you had to bring this or bring that or cut that up or do this thing or that thing, but it's the moral law that Paul speaks of from here on out. It wasn't the uh, wave offering or the sheep offering or the sin offering, that type of thing. It's the moral law. Now, dead to the law means freedom from the power of the law as having endured its curse and satisfied its demand. This only takes place when the believer is united to Christ. So they are freed from this covenant, the covenant of works. The law requires perfect obedience as the conditions of life and pronounces a curse on the smallest failure. You say, oh, not just you say, but a lot of folks say. It's not fair that God's too strict. Well, I'll tell you, he makes the rules. You're in the game, and you better play by the rules. I don't care how you, how you don't like it. You can't change them. Now, Christ is the covenant head or representative of all believers who are united to him and born of God. For them he has borne its curse under which he died and fulfilled all its demands, and they are consequently dead to it. That is no longer under it as a covenant. Now it says, by the body of Christ. That is, by the offering of the body of Christ. Look at Hebrews 10.10. Hebrews 10.10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of, of Jesus Christ once for all. What is intended is his whole human 
nature composed of soul and body. Now, you think that's not described in maybe in the Old Testament? Well, it sure is. Look at Isaiah 53.10. Put your ribbon there in Romans 7 so you can come back to it quickly. I'm going to do that too. Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, and when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It said here he made his soul is an offering for sin, and we know that his body was too. Now, as believers are one body with Christ, so when his body died, they also died. How is that? We'll turn to Romans 6, look at verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. They are therefore by the sacrifice of his body or by his death dead to the law. They cannot be justified by it, having failed to render it perfect obedience. You can't be justified by the law. And turn look at Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20 tells us that. Did we read that just before? Yeah, we've already read that, haven't we? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, the same way you can't be justified by the law, believers also cannot be condemned by it, by being redeemed from its curse by him who was made a curse for them. Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now it's said in verse 4, Romans 7, that should be married to another. Christ is now their lawful husband, seeing the first husband hath been put to death. From the covenant of Adam, or of works, believers have been transferred to the covenant of Christ or of grace. Now, it also says that we should bring forth fruit unto God in verse 4. One of the great ends of marriage was to people the world, and the end of believers to Christ is that they may bring forth fruit unto God. Let's see what our Lord says about that in John 15, verses 4 through 8. John 15. John 15, 4 through 8. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. 
And he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. And here is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now, no work is recognized as fruit unto God before there is union with Christ. Every good work before this is called a dead work. Now, it's called the works of the flesh. Look at Romans 8.8. 8. Just turn over a page from where we're studying, Romans 8.8. 8. And he says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, where do our professors come from? Well, they are those who wish to do good works before the good work is done in them. You have got to have your sins forgiven before good works can be done. Now, let's look at verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin. When we were in the flesh, that is, in our natural state, the flesh here means the corrupt state of nature. Flesh is often opposed to the spirit. Let's see how our Lord describes that. Turn to John 3, 6. John 3, 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit of spirit. Two distinct subjects, objects. Two different things. And they both abide in the believer. Now, the word spirit has acquired the meaning of a holy or divine principle or a new nature. It comes not from man, but from God by God's Holy Spirit. Now he says the motions of sin. Verse 5, the motions of sin. It is natural to the corrupt mind to desire what is forbidding, starting with even little babies. And the members... In that verse, which in a, it says it works in our members, they're mentioned rather than the body to describe that sin by the impulse of their various evil desires, which employ as its slaves all the different members of the body. So he says the members, they work in our members to bring forth fruit. Eyes, ears, nose, Hands, arms, feet, legs, all have their little job to do when they're working for that corrupted mind. I don't have to go into any details. You all know what I'm talking about. To bring forth fruit unto death. Death is not, re is, is, is not viewed as the parent of the works, it is the desires that are the parents of the works. 
verse 6. It says, But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Christ has fulfilled the law and suffered its penalty for them. And so they are free from the demands of the law. At serving in oldness of the letter, there's much outward conformity to the law, and it, and it may in this way be obtained from the pride of self-righteousness, the principle being a selfish, slavish, mercenary, carnal disposition influenced by the fear of punishment and hope of a reward. Now, that's about as much as the average church member knows today. They know that there's a punishment mentioned, and there's a kind of a slavish fear there to do the best they can so that their good works will outweigh the bad things they do in life. And there's not a person living that doesn't feel that they do more good than they do evil. Now, verse 7 What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Paul says that so often. He asks a question that comes straight from the heart of the natural man. And then he says, God forbid. Why would you ask such a thing? Well, he's only describing the natural man's heart. Paul shows that by the strictness of its precepts, exciting the corruptions of his heart, it was the means of convicting him that he was a sinner. Under its condemnation in the law was thus to him the instrument of good. For he would not have known sin, but by the law. Now Paul now begins to describe his own experience respecting the operation of the law. And from here on out, he's talking about Paul and what he knows personally. He would not have known sin as he now knew it. He now sees himself a sinner. Now, Paul does not say that he would not have been a sinner. He didn't say that. But that he would not have known sin as he knew it now. No man is without sin. Yet a proud Pharisee might think himself free from sin by keeping the law when he did not look to it as extending to the thoughts of the heart. Now, Paul said there was a day that he was blameless. <laughs> How about that? Look at Philippians 3, 6. Paul bragging? No. He's only telling you what he thought he was. Philippians 3, 6. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church of all things, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He did all those things according to what he thought was right, and in his own eyes he was blameless in the law. Now, without the law, he would not have known that the desire of what is forbidden is sin. Just to desire what is forbidden is sin. Now, this the world disagrees on, and especially the Catholic Church. 
Just looking and thinking is okay as long as you don't touch. You hear that all the time, especially describing young men, describing young married men, describing old married men. Oh, they can look all they want to as long as they don't touch. It's still sin. You see, the Bible has a different set of rules and standards than the normal, natural human heart. Our Lord summed that up in Matthew 5.28. Take a peek, and if you can get over that one, you've done great. Matthew 5.28. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Oh, it's okay to look, huh? No, it isn't. You say you can look without lusting? I bet you can. I can't. While we are talking about inside and outside sin, let me add here that there are no little or big sins. They are all infinite sins because committed against an infinite God. The law does not cause sin but discovers it, stripping it of its disguise and bringing it to light. Here he says the commandment discovered to him the sinful natures of evil desires. Let's read that again. It's in Romans 7. Sometimes that language is hard to understand. You've got to really concentrate on it. Verse 7. Is, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? He says, God forbid. It's not sinful, the law. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, we're going to come into something in a minute, and I'll explain to you that the question that's going on in your mind. But we haven't come to that part yet. It'll be just a moment. Without the law, sin was dead. The apostle would not have been without sin, but he would not have felt the action of his unlawful desires. He's not saying he wasn't going to be a sinner, because it's there. But to know it, to feel it, is something different. Without the law, sin or the working of his corrupt nature having no opposition, their, op their operation would not have been known. Verse 9, Paul says, I was alive without the law once. Paul was alive without the law when he thought proudly of his good life. But when the commandment came with the power of the Spirit, then it slew him and destroyed all of his legal hopes. That's what he means by being dead or smitten by the law. It killed his hopes of eternal life by keeping the law. I was alive. That was his own opinion. He wasn't alive. He was dead. But he felt it. Now let's explain a little basics here. Why would the same words of the same commandments convict him then when they never did before? Same commandments. Same words. 
and Paul had memorized them. But why are they convicting him now? And why don't they and why didn't they convict all the other Pharisees living at the same time? The answer is it's God's Spirit making the word living to a heart and being sovereign. See, God's Spirit is sovereign. It works when and where he pleases. Just like Hebrews 14.12, describing the word of God as a living two-edged sword. Want to take a peek at it? It's very familiar with all of us. Hebrews 4. Verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the critic. You're not the critic when you're reading God's word. God's word is your critic. Now, it is living if the Spirit of God is using it. But many, many people just read the Bible, keep it laying around, and never feel the cutting edge ever. And it said it's a two-edged sword. That applies to the law, to the promises, to the threatenings, to the doctrines, to the miracles, to Christ himself. Just words, sometimes a good story, but not even a light like the Bible claims to be. Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Is that just for David? No, as for all of God's people and everyone who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ will affirm that very statement. The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway and I can't move or live without it. Now back to our study. Paul says he died. That is death to his view of salvation by keeping the law. He says, without the law, he was ignorant of it until his conversion. And this he calls being without the law. He could recite you the law forward and backwards, but was ignorant of the spirituality of the law. You see, this is a traumatic event in any sinner's life when he is given life to see that he was dead. Paul's not giving us any figures, but he lived a lifetime in those three days and nights that he was blind. The Lord made him blind to show him the blindness of his heart and the blindness of his understanding. Turn to Acts 9.9. Acts 9.9. You might as well see how he was blinded or what happened when he was blind. 
Let's read verse 8. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He tried to open his eyes. He opened his eyes, but he was blind. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Now, as soon as he had light, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse uh, verses 17 and 18. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes that had been scaled and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. But he was also filled with the Holy Ghost, as it said in the end of verse 17. Now, all Paul's hopes, founded on what he was in himself, were destroyed, and he discovered that he was a sinner condemned by the law. The law which he had looked to for justification he now saw subjected him to death. So really when Paul died, he was brought to spiritual life. And it's so with every sinner. Dead to the law, alive to God. Look at Galatians 2.19. Galatians 2.19. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Now, we're going to have two scriptures left, and we're going to close. First of all, I want to show you what the Apostle Paul thought of himself before the Lord saved him. Turn to Philippians 3 and look at verses 4 through 6. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Okay, now we're going to see what he says about himself after the Lord saved him. That's verses 7 through 10. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Is there a change? 
you better believe it. Change from the flesh to the spirit. From self-righteousness to an imputed righteousness. To self-confidence to confidence in Christ. All of God's people feel that, know that. It's an experience to them. They know where they've been and they know where they are. They know where and when God brought them down. They know where and when God delivered them. And people don't like that. They say, well, no, that's being too... No, it's not specific. It's exactly what happens. God saves a sinner and he knows. It's the greatest thing that ever happens in a sinner's life is for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed to their heart. So how could you not know it? Well, all God's people do. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank thee this morning for thy goodness, mercy, long-suffering to us as sinners. Save sinners. Still sinners. Still living in sin. Living around sin. Seeing sin. Hearing sin. And we're tired of it, Lord. We're so tired, so hungry for our new bodies. Bodies and minds that will never sin. That's why we say, hurry, Lord Jesus, come back. On the other hand, thou only knowest the hour when thou wilt come back. And we're to occupy until thou dost come. And so we preach and teach and witness to sinners that they'll know about their soul's salvation, know about the great Redeemer, and know that thy word is truth. Thank you for opening our hearts and minds to the truth of thy word. Every little tiny spiritual bit of anything that we have is because thou has been kind enough and merciful enough to give it to us. Thank you for thy great love. We ask you to bless each one here this morning. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, you have.